Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Jesse, who are two people who practice here, uh, just had a baby, and um, they had a healthy baby boy uh, who was six pounds something, and then after he was born, he was coughing a lot, and they took him to the hospital, and he had to go through surgery, but now he's okay. Um, so it's been a really roller coaster time for them, as you can imagine. So there's a little card going around, and you can just sign your name and say something. <clears throat> so the topic tonight is uh, the fifth in our slow-moving series on the third chapter of the Yoga Sutra, and we're going to be looking at uh, line number nine. And the topic for tonight is the term sanskara, which um, is a term we we hear very often. And uh, I thought we would go into it in some depth. Does everybody have a copy to share? So the sentence here is, the transformation towards stillness occurs as new samskaras fostering cessation arise to prevent the activation of distractive stored ones and moments of stillness begin to permeate consciousness. It's actually a hard sentence to translate. So the word sam and kata. So sam means to come together. Uh, It's actually where via the Latin, we get the word S-U-M, as in uh, summation. Or uh, through the Greek, it's where we get the word com, C-O-M, as in community. Um, And kata comes from the root kud, which means to make. uh, But it's actually where we get the word create. Um, So samskaras are uh, creations. And usually, if you look it up in a dictionary, that it'll be defined as volitional formations, which is kind of dry a little bit. So the way I've translated it tonight is uh, what comes into being. 
And the definition of what comes into being is everything. So if you ask, what is a samskara? The answer is everything. Wind, bodies, relationships, the whole universe, roof tiles, windows, grass, the whole thing comes into being. And most of the time we relate to things and we forget that they've come into being. We forget about them as a process. Um, Right now, behind where I live, there is a a house being built. And so seeing it, um, and it's kind of upsetting, actually, (laughs) Uh, but seeing it each day kind of changing and morphing, I think I was thinking today that by the time I see the whole structure, I'll never really see it as a house. I'll always see it as what came into being from this other building that was once there. Or you come in here and you sit down on this cushion and it's a fixed thing and this one's mine. It's my favorite. It's brown. It's tall. I've used it on lots of retreats. Um, it's a thing. Um, but actually, if you've been spending time with Grant sewing cushions, which some of you have, then you know how you take the material, you know how it's stitched, you know how the pattern's cut, you know what's inside it, you know how many husks are inside it. And then when you sit down on this thing, um, it's not just a thing, it's this process that you've been really involved in. So that's kind of what a sanskara is. It's, It's the coming together of action. So in other words, everything you can relate to, including the you that's relating, is a samskara. Does that make sense? A little bit? Yeah. Um, in the Yoga Sutra, in the sentence number nine, this is really the most salient place samskara is used, and Patanjali uses it in a really interesting way here in terms of meditation practice. Um, in the Buddha's teaching, you also find samskara um, in, in uh, Pali, it's sankara. Uh, which is the second aggregate, or is it the first aggregate? First aggregate or second of the five aggregates? I can't remember. The, the place that, that I, I came across it uh, first, and that probably most people learn, is at the time of the Buddha's death. Uh, the Buddha went for dinner to uh, a metal worker who was part of his sangha and was served a truffle which came from bamboo shoots. Um, And he got very sick, and a few days later he realized he was deteriorating and he was going to die. So he asked his attendant, Ananda, to take him uh, to a grove near Kusanagara, where they set up a bed for him between two sala trees. And Ananda stayed with him while the Buddha was dying, and mostly wept. Um, At one point, Ananda is crying and giving water to the Buddha. And the Buddha says to Ananda, Ananda, don't don't fret. It's okay. Uh, Don't you remember everything that I've taught? That you are a samskara. That I am samskara. That we're uh, coming into being. And because we're coming into being, also we fall apart. Um, so really take that into your heart and, and don't cry so much. 
Um, eventually, the Buddha gives his last sermon on uh, the samskaras, and then uh, he dies. Um, here are two translations of the last part of that sermon. One is, how inconstant samskaras are. Their nature is to arise and pass away. They disband as they're arising, and their total stillness is peace. Another translation, conditioned formations are truly transient. Why do we have to have this beaten over our heads all the time? All formations are transient. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Having arisen, they pass away. Their calming and cessation is true bliss. Um, In Theravadan countries, like in Burma and in Thailand and in parts of India, those four lines are actually sung at funerals. And they're sung at funerals uh, in the Pali because uh, they're reminding people who are at a funeral that not only is the person who you're grieving, not only has that person passed away, but you're also aligned with that passing. In other words, you can also be awake to this through recognizing your own passing. So that's a beautiful... I don't think we say that very much in funerals here. Um, So all things have a birth and a death. And all conditions come together for a time and then come apart. Uh, This this past weekend, uh, for the last five days, I've been in Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico, uh, teaching at one of my favorite uh, places, the Upaya Zen Center, which is a monastery in the hills just outside Santa Fe. And um, I love going there so much. It's so peaceful there. And the architecture of the place is so beautiful. And um, so when I get there, I'm always really at peace. And when I structure my workshop, we do it within the residential schedule. So we wake up early and do sitting. We do uh, service, chanting. It's really wonderful. Um, and all the 20 residents who live there all were part of the workshop. So there's nothing more wonderful to me. Uh, but then I had this room, and in the room, and I love the room, but in the room was a futon. And for any of you who know, futons are designed to sleep on your back, not on your side. But I can't sleep on my back. So I would try to sleep on my back. I couldn't get to sleep. So I slept on my side, and then I woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning in so much pain, I, I pulled some vertebrae, you know, really, really painful. And I actually couldn't even sit up. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got to teach in the morning, you know. So basically, I just kind of propped myself up and just practiced breathing. <laughs> and then I learned that I could switch from the... But I didn't... I wasn't convinced that... It was the trouble of the futon. So I stayed in the room. And then the next night, the same thing happened. So I had this really weird trip. Because I was in a place that I love. We were doing tons of sitting. And I was really peaceful. And the talks were good. And the aspens were changing color. And the cactus were... It was so good. 
And I was also in this terrible mood at the same time. Do you know that? Does anyone here ever not sleep, Elaine? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So this thing can happen where when you're not sleep, I don't know what happens to you, but when I don't sleep, one of the first thing that happens is I get uh, fearful and like a little paranoid, like I start double checking things and it's not really in my normal state. So going back and forth between real peacefulness and then this kind of like worrying about my stuff and if I was on time for things and like a way I don't usually operate. Um, And then slowly starting to recognize how each of these patterns are like different formations. And then this was my practice, was when I was peaceful to really feel peacefulness. And then when I was feeling paranoia, after a few days of not sleeping well, to really just be in the paranoia. Does anybody here get like this when they don't sleep? Worry comes in? Yeah. So um, I'm not somebody who worries a lot, but when I don't sleep, that's really... So... um, I was also thinking about preparing for this night, and I was like, oh, these are the samskaras, right? There's certain conditions come together, not sleeping, this particular mattress, and so on, and that brings a certain mood. As opposed to what we usually do is, oh my God, what's going on? I've got to get rid of this fear, and you know, whatever it is you, you go into, um, be, you know, becoming identified with with the mood, rather than seeing it as a, a samskara. I didn't know I was going to tell you all this tonight. <laughs> um, it reminded me, uh, when the monks were here from Burma, they told me that in the first 10 years of their practice, uh, it's a tradition for Burmese monks never to stay in a monastery for more than three nights without switching rooms. So for t- can you imagine this? For 10 years, every three nights, you move to a new room or to a new monastery. And so they're constantly uh, going from place to place. Uh, so they don't get attached to one particular uh, bed, one particular condition. I hope they don't have futons <laughs> in Burma. Um, a belief is a sanskara. A child is a samskara. Banks are samskaras. Conditioned. Um, There's a term that's bandied around a lot called neuroplasticity. Um, Neuroplasticity really is the the core of understanding samskaras. And the, the core belief in neuroplasticity is neurons that fire together, wire together. And this is a way of reminding us that the, the brain is not uh, a mechanism, right? And this really comes out of Descartes, right? Descartes really thought the brain and the mind were two separate things and that the brain was this mechanism and uh, it controlled your mind or vice versa. But it was kind of like a pump and it worked with like levers and fluids um, and, you know, it was connected Uh, to the kneecap, and if you hit the kneecap, it sends a signal to the brain, and it's all very mechanical. Um, And uh, I've been doing a little bit of research on neuroplasticity, and I was surprised um, that the neuroscientists say that neuroplasticity was discovered in 1890 by Freud. Um, Freud had a term um, 
Freud had a way of talking about uh, neuroplasticity where he was say, where he explored how physical symptoms that show up in the body see Freud was a neurologist he was a physician he was a neurologist and at that time they thought everything neurologically could be explained mechanically and if you ever read Freud the language is quite mechanical you know defense mechanisms and so on so Freud was exploring how he was very satisfied when people had certain physical symptoms, how they would be described mechanically by the neuroscience paradigm. And so what he did was he got people to lie down, and when they had certain physical symptoms, they would talk about them and explore out loud what came up as they were feeling these symptoms. And he started to notice that when people talked, and this is why it was eventually called the talking cure, that there was this relationship between language and the body. And for Freud, this was a sanskara, a, a kind of conditioned formation that had been split apart by science. And he was trying to bring this back together again. Um, at the time, Freud says, when two events happen in the mind at the same time, the nerve cells are strengthened. Doesn't that sound like neuroscience? When two events happen in the mind at the same time, nerve cells are strengthened. Um, and then, learning from Freud, a Canadian named Dr. Hebb came up with this term, Hebbian, of course he named it after himself, uh, like most male scientists did in the last century, um, called Hebbian plasticity. Um, and he got this idea from Freud that if you could speak freely, you can begin to recall the ways you started putting things together with language, even at an early age. And the way language and the body meet, make a world. Um, now we don't see things like that. We see that the brain and mind uh, are kind of mysterious in their relationship, and they're interdependent. Um, the political side of this split, I also have to say, uh, after having trained in psychology, is that we've always had the psychiatrists on one side and the therapists on the other side. Um, and it's only recently that they're really starting to have better conversations. Because if the brain is an inanimate object, then it can't really change as much as the people who are doing the talking uh, think that it can change. Um, and I notice this in therapists and psychiatrists especially that I know where if they're frustrated working with a patient and the patient's not changing they go back to this metaphor where they say well it must be just hardwired it must be hardwired in them and that's again going back to this kind of mechanical model right? they can't change um, Plasticity means the brain can change its structure and its function depending on what it does. So the structure changes by how we react, how we act, how we don't act, how we think. And neuropsychology says the biggest influence of changing structure in the brain is how we imagine things. It's how we use our imagination. And plasticity exists at every level 
uh, the behavior of cells, bones, thoughts, and images. So in other words, when learning gets done, it doesn't just get done out here, like with our hands and with our feet. Learning gets done under the skin and under the skin in the genes. So according to neuroscience, actually when learning is getting done, genes are turning on and off. That you're actually affecting even the evolution of the human species in what you do and how it's repeated over time. And these are scars. And to be honest, I actually think it's a, a more interesting vocabulary and way of understanding it than just uh, the coming together of volitional formation. Um, and at the same time, when there's re-sculpting of the brain, not only is it changing genetic code, but we also start to realize that change is not infinitely plastic. So in the same way that things can change and become elastic, they can also change to become rigid. So sometimes we think, oh, neuroplasticity, everything's just changing and up for grabs. Part of that change is also to create structure. So I was reading uh, about strokes uh, yesterday in the Denver airport. Um, and I found it interesting listening to a psychiatrist talking about um, someone they are working with who had a stroke. And the term they use is they lost cortical real estate, which I really love. Um, and the idea is, let's say someone has a stroke in the right hemisphere, so then their left arm won't work, okay? So then what they do is they realize their left arm doesn't work, and so they start to work with their right hand in more creative ways to do many more things, right? This is the basic samskaric idea. Um, anyways, this psychiatrist who was working with people who had strokes uh, had this idea that maybe it wasn't true that cortical real estate was lost altogether. Uh, maybe there was swelling for a time, and that because you gave up on the left arm, you just got the right hand working uh, in su in, with such dexterity that actually you just uh, rerouted the brain in that direction. So this psychiatrist, what he did is he took the right hand, which was not damaged, and put it in a sling with several patients who had stroke and started teaching them how to use the left hand with, as you can imagine, an enormous amount of patients and found that he could get it working again. And he was having success where he would get, he was working just with people with this issue with the arms and he would get people back to 60 or 70% of dexterity again, which is kind of an amazing discovery. Then he started working with people who had a stroke and couldn't use language very well. They couldn't speak well anymore. And probably you all know somebody uh, like this. And he came up with this really complicated set of rules where when you were in certain situations, there was rules about how you could speak. So for example, if you were eating food and you wanted to talk about food, there was a list of words you could use and a list of words not to use. And there were all kind of complicated linguistic rules using cue cards or game cards. And he showed that uh, people could start to use language in new ways. 
um, that were e- like they even found a vocabulary that was more complex and sophisticated and nuanced than the vocabulary they had before the stroke to show how the brain was elastic, was plastic. Um, and he uses the image, uh, this psychiatrist, of a snow in, snow in wintertime. When you go cross-country skiing, you, uh, has anyone been cross-country skiing? I haven't been so much, but you know, you get in these tracks, right? And then the more times you go through the track, they turn into ruts, right? And then when you're in a track, it's actually quite hard to get out of the track. So these are some scars. The more you take particular actions neuropsychologically, the more you get into certain ruts. And this is why when we experience change in our lives, it's so painful. Because we've been in a certain groove, and then we only know that groove. And it's really hard to start a new groove. Um, I have a note here. It says, so how does this relate to Occupy Wall Street? (laughs) Um, So after I read this, I had this idea that maybe sanskaras are not just individual, but maybe sanskaras, if they're affecting genetic code, are also equally social and economic and ecological. And then I had this idea... What if we take everything that we're good at, which is causing so much ecological destruction, and put it in a sling? How do we do that? How do we put the ruts that we're in in a sling? Each of us. How do you take something you're doing that's contributing to, um, you name it, greenhouse gas, the banking system, and try putting it in a sling and seeing what other kind of ideas can come up. I think this is the thing that's been so interesting about the Occupy Wall Street movement is how somehow to talk about alternatives to predatory capitalism seem impossible. There's this kind of idea, well, you can't talk about that. Uh, We can talk about anything but that. Right? Freud would love that. Like to not be able to speak of alternatives uh, seems kind of uh, a real rut for our culture. So I had some ideas of how to put things in a sling. Here they are, even though we're not supposed to make demands yet. Um, I had this idea that we could have political candidates um, who get popular through YouTube. Okay? Because right now, if you wanted to run for United States president, uh, you have to have millions and millions of dollars. Yeah? Um, this is the paradox of the Barack Obama campaign, is he had more uh, donations from Wall Street than any other president. <laughs> you know? So isn't it possible that right now, with the complexity of social media and how things can go viral, that we could actually watch a president come through the ranks via social media. 
via Twitter, via you. They just do some silly thing in a mirror that their mother films. <laughs> like that girl who does the self-affirmations on YouTube. Have you seen her? Yeah. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, candidates who are not bought. Could you imagine this? Uh, number three, um, people who come into politics who are not coming from big oil banks or health insurance. Do you think that's possible? Nobody's agreeing with me. I'm going to keep going through the list. Uh, and lastly, the possibility of doing politics not in Ottawa, but around Ottawa. How to do politics outside of the political grooves. How is this possible? So I was thinking of these ideas and I thought, well, each of those things is crazy. It's great. You can't think about that. You're not allowed to think about that. That's not possible. Um, but what the Occupy Wall Street movement is discussing is... Um, how is it possible to do politics outside of politics? How is this possible? This is what has to happen because politics is owned by the banks. So you can't march on Washington because that's not the change is not going to come from Washington. You see? So I thought this was an interesting way of thinking about some scars. It may make sense, it may not make sense, but I think we forget that there are places where we have a hard time using our imagination because we're in a rut. We know what works, and so we just try and figure out how to put some new idea back into that paradigm. And then we keep repeating ourselves, like some kind of addiction. Um, we have an economy that's doing worse year after year. And if you look at it in terms of the Canadian economy, we have an economy that's staying stable at the expense of water and forests and the health of northern communities. Or people who are homeless, you know... You, or people who are out of work. We say, oh, the statistic of how many people are out of work is such and such. In the United States, 44.6% of people out of work have been out of work for more than a year. That is so bad for their body. That is so bad for their family. That is so bad for their community, for all of our health. And these are new scars. The last thing I want to say about that is according to yoga, according to the Dharma, poverty is really bad. And it's really bad because it causes dukkha. It causes suffering. And the core of the Buddha's message, of Patanjali's message, is to fully know suffering and to take action to go to work on the problem. And it seems like in our culture, 
we've been a little blind to how much suffering there is. We're so wrapped, I'm so, I haven't slept in a few days. I'm so fearful. I don't care about your suffering. I just like, I really just need a really good bed and, you know, snow tires. I'm too stressed out, man, to know about your suffering. I just got to take care of this. And then that's the sangskara you plant. I just have to take care of this. So we have to stop thinking of spirituality over here and economics over here. We have to stop thinking of spirituality over here and ecology over here. In the same way, we have a two-column accounting system that does not make sense anymore. We have this binary view that my spiritual practice is over here and leave economy to the economists. And we've been leaving economy to the economists, and look what happened. So I know some of you haven't been on Wall Street, but one of the things that's happening at Occupy Wall Street now is some of the leading economists, especially from NYU and Columbia University, have been spending the week working with some of the organizers of Occupy Wall Street to start to develop some really interesting ideas about how to rethink economics. And um, this is a fantastic thing because I think it's the beginning of being able to say, okay, what we've been doing doesn't really work anymore. What economists are out there who've been warning that this hasn't worked, in the same way we're warning about the tar sands, and um, create some new ideas. And then there's that part of the culture and part of us internally that says, oh, no, 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 it can't be done. It can't be done. And then we fall back again into the groove and we lose our momentum. Um, so I wrote uh, yesterday to David Loy, who some of you know, who's sort of my intellectual hero. And I said, uh, please help us out. You're the smartest person I know. I wrote to all the smartest people I know this week, actually. Um, uh, Stephen Batchelor, David Loy, a whole list. And I said, you're the smartest people I know. I haven't heard you say anything yet about Occupy Wall Street. Say something. And David Lloyd wrote an incredible article, uh, amazing essay. Um, and you'll probably see it on the, our Facebook tomorrow. Um, but one of the things he says in here is really interesting. It's important for spiritual groups to understand that market emphasis on commodity accumulation and consumption undermines their most important teachings. Should I repeat that? It's important for spiritual communities or spiritual groups to understand that market emphasis on commodity accumulation and consumption undermines their most important teachings. Did you catch that? The corrosive influence of economic globalization and its development institutions on our real human values needs to be challenged. 
And then the last comment. How many times in your life do you get a chance to watch history unfold like this? What David Loy is calling for in his incredible essay that I hope you find tomorrow on the net. It's up? Where is it? Where? Oh, good. It's up. Yeah. Um, so some of you saw that I wrote an article this week that's been, I'm so happy that it's been all over the internet. And so David took that article and he just took it much further. And um, this basic idea that uh, we have to realize that here we are meditating, practicing together, trying to live in a way that's in line with our values. And then we go out into the world and we participate in systems that are totally out of line with our values. And spiritual people have to stop thinking of all the work in here, just in here. You know, It's like saying, well, those 1%, I have all those qualities in myself. Well, well, yes, you do, and you have to work on them. And there's still a 1% out there that's uh, doing what they're doing. So how do we act? Well, number one, we can't act out of hatred. Number two, we have to be incredibly imaginative. If you hate the people in the banks, then you don't have a right to protest. If you hate them, whatever action you're going to do is going to set up a new pattern that's based in hate. Right? We saw it in Cuba. We see it in South America so many times. Uh, uh, a violent movement takes over, and they become just as violent as the movement they overtook. It has to be more creative than that. And that's what's been so interesting about Occupy Wall Street, is we haven't been giving the media the violence they want so much, except in Rome. But they're Italian. <laughs> we have to see that how we bank and how we consume and what we do with our money that all those things are spiritual practice. And then we have to look at our spiritual practice and see that all the things that we do in our spiritual practice are all economic and all political. And this is how we undo the samskaras. And Patanjali is saying something very interesting here, that in meditation practice, when you sit still and you don't react to, to the emotions and the feelings and the images that move through you, then you're planting new grooves of non-reactivity. So we often think not doing something is passivity. But Patanjali is saying being still is actually an action that's planting new grooves in your mind, in your body, and in your family. I want to be a good dad, so I have to meditate so that I, I'm living the values that I want my son to have. That, that's how this lineage works. <laughs> yeah. So I really encourage everyone in this room to think about their spiritual practice as happening moment to moment in every action. 
that the shadow side of our economy is devastation to ecology. And that the shadow side of a spiritual practice that's just about me is not paying attention to the oneness of life, the interdependence. And for too long, we've been talking about spiritual practices all inside here, inside the skin bag. We're trying to end dukkha. And if you have suffered in your life, it tenderizes you to the way other people suffer. And when you start to work through the way you've suffered, you get these skills and these tools where now you know how to help other people. So maybe now's the time to recognize what kind of tools do you have that you've learned from working with the difficulty in your own life and share those with other people? Instead of like getting over your suffering and creating more suffering for yourself, because it's kind of fun (laughs) to talk about yourself and think about yourself, but to connect your own wounds to other people's wounds. How many people in here have debt? Yeah. It's heavy. It's really heavy to have debt. It kind of crushes you. So we can just sit there feeling crushed and we can also do something about it. And the only way to do something about it is to get imaginative. But you see, it's hard to be imaginative when you're stuck in a groove. And sometimes in spiritual practice, you just think, well, the groove is all in me. But the groove is also in our society, right? It's also in our culture. So these are the sanskaras. Everything's a sanskara. Everything is plastic. Everything's elastic. I don't like saying everything's plastic, even though it is. Everything's elastic. Sometimes elastic's a bit better than plastic, I don't know. So I want to stop here and I just want to see if we can open it up. And instead of having questions and answers, could we maybe just like have some more discussion? Uh, Especially those of you who are shy and think maybe you don't have clever ideas or something. Um, So let's just sort of like stretch our arms and... Make sure our spine is in order, especially mine, because I'm suffering more than you. (laughs) It's the job of a spiritual community to challenge values in the cultures that are not in line with nonviolence, with interdependence, with intimacy, with kindness for one another. So, Danny. Um, I was just thinking to what you were saying, reading this, this translation, and I was also thinking, isn't he also suggesting, or isn't he also saying that what may be still valid is um, going into retreat? 
Our society needs to get secluded in a cave right now. The problem is there's no caves left. They all have graffiti in them and, I don't know, broken bottles or whatever, shopping carts. So, Or there's no caves left, I don't know. Um, that's not an option. So how do we as a culture retreat? Well, maybe we have to leave our houses and go sleep on the streets for a few nights. <clears throat> Feel what that's like, yeah. Down the park, they're like, inspired of making things happen. Yeah. In a way that's just rebuilding everything that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, isn't the human microphone amazing? <laughs> like, we're so creative. You know? It's really amazing. <laughs> Someone else? Andrea. I have a question about creative ways of doing banking. Um, I don't know I, if, we could, if, if people already have ways that they're using that doesn't use these mega structures. Because um, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. So I don't know it's pretty impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But it, you know, it's interesting to look at where we've come from to get to the places where we are now, and what we can learn from that, and and use that information to sort of fuel our creativity. Yeah. So just to put those things together, I mean, maybe it's not so much about the pressure of like, okay, well, what are we going to replace it with? Which is what's so interesting about this movement and saying, well, we're not ready for that yet. First, we have to see the problem. And you have to see, as Laurie said, to feel the intensity of saying it's impossible. <laughs> like, like, I want to buy a car, but I don't want to buy a car that has batteries or runs on oil. It's impossible. So, like, now is the time to start to wake up to what it feels like that that's impossible. Right? I mean, that's what's motivating as opposed to, okay, here we are, and now we just need a whole new, you know, idea. 
this ism. Mm -hmm. Yes, Cassie. I'm thinking of last spring when we were talking about, I think it was last spring, we were talking about Army of Peace Mm. and um, how we should watch this movement spread. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so some of the folks at Occupy Wall Street have been working uh, for the last few days, and some of you might know this already, with some systems theorists. And they came up with this new idea that starting on Saturday, Occupy Wall Street is not going to stay in the park that they're in, and they're going to spread out all over New York in subways and 10 or 12 different parks so that um, they're spread out and will be harder to control. (laughs) Um, which is really a fantastic idea. So what does that come out of? Kind of uh, feeling the pressure of not knowing how to keep momentum. And then this idea comes up. Peacemakers. Yeah, Lauren. Um, Well, there's a concept in Buddhism that says stopping is the first step to healing. And it sounds like that's a lot of what's going on. Yeah. Um, it, it also reminds me of a, a place I stayed at um, about six years ago uh, in, on Galliano Island in the Gulf Islands. And it used to be a log dump. And then this uh, woman bought it, and she said she didn't quite know how to build, like she wanted to build a, a, a guest house. Mm-hmm. So she she just camped out on the land for couple months to see what the landowner built. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. And this place is pretty wild. It looks like something sort of grew out of the land. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So what does the land want here? I don't know. I've got a no more of these buildings. <laughs> Actually, I've heard quite a bit of f bombs around mm-hmm. the whole movement. Quite a bit of like people just saying f this and that. And yeah. And I find it personally, I find it really upsetting. Uh-huh. Um, you know, just because there are so many people who think that the states is so much worse than Canada, which uh-huh. in you know in ways mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And to just kind of like sit with that and not try to like change anybody's mind mm-hmm. about anything. Mm-hmm. I find that really challenging about this whole mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to attract all types. Yeah. And it's hard to get along with other types. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
moment where the police came mm -hmm. and walked through the park and people started following the police and sort of some amount of, I don't know if there was vehemence or whatever was building, mm -hmm. and um, someone got on the human mic and, and was like, you know, will the, will the person who's supposed to relay with the police show themselves, you know, come in and be present in it? Someone else got on the human mic and was like, the police are the 99%, <laughs> you know, kind of in it an effort to really be like, we're all part of the same thing. They're working mm -hmm. class people doing their job too, and to, yeah. to just sort of uh, go against any rising mm -hmm. vehemence that might have been coming from the, from the crowd, to, yeah. just as like a reminder of that we're all actually part of it. I thought that was really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was watching The National last night, and they had a little feature on the mayor of Calgary. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've watched no. him, but he's been really creative, and mm. he's very popular at the moment. And mm. he's doing things, like he's putting all of his meetings up on Facebook every day, mm -hmm. and all of his expenses on social media every day. And mm. I mean, that he's not necessarily changing much, but he's changing uh -huh. that much. Yeah. You know, it's, I find mm. it really exciting. Mm. Mm. Anybody want to sleep over tonight? <laughs> 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 oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we're not going to come up with a new society tonight. Um, and at the same time, you're also by just reimagining your place in society. Um, you're building a new society. And I think that's really the, the message of this piece of the Yoga Sutra individually. And I think our job right now is to see it individually and also socially. And we're just going to keep reading the third chapter like this to see that this text comes out of a time when practice was private and individual and internal. And we're not living. Uh, some of you might know that on Friday, uh, this coming Friday, uh, the earth hits 7 billion people. And with 7 billion people, your spiritual practice cannot be private and internal. It has to be relational. And it has to see that because we're embedded in each other's lives and embedded on this planet, what we do has an effect. And we all come here because we know it has an effect. It affects us, but it also affects all those around us. And now's the time to really look at that. Really look at that. And do something. So, let's wrap up the finished chanting. To be continued.